So I'm imagining your smiles underneath the masks. Usually <laughs> like to kind of clock some smiles when I'm about to give a talk. It helps. <laughs> so here we are, the end of our second full day of practice and halfway through our retreat and really appreciating the way, how graciously you're all going with the flow of what is a, you know, an, an unusual form of retreat. And I know for many of you, you don't have something with which to compare it, but those, those of you who do will know that it's a, it is a retreat that requires a little bit more you know, flexibility and willingness to dance with changing conditions and also for, for the teaching team too and all the people who are supporting us. So I think we're all doing a, a great job of navigating that and uh, very much appreciating your commitment and sincerity and willingness to keep showing up in all the different conditions So here we are, we're continuing to cultivate this sense of um, steady presence and using um, the natural world around us and this wonderful outdoor environment we have here as a support for presence, which is um, you know, really stimulating and enlivening and also has, it, has its particular challenges. But we're doing this in order to develop more sense of clarity at seeing, um, understanding the process of life inside and outside of us. And Susie yesterday was talking about one of um, the three characteristics of life or of conditioned experience that the Buddhist tradition and the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha himself, really pointed to as the most important things for us to understand and notice. And she did also give a heads up about where I was going with this this evening. So yesterday, Susie was talking about impermanence and noticing the constantly changing nature of experience and um, the uncontrollability of that. And today I want to talk about the second of these so-called three characteristics or signature qualities of experience, which is dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. And Susie began to touch on this yesterday, but to say a little bit more about that. So dukkha is a Pali word, Pali being the language of the early teachings, uh, spelled D-U-K-K-H-A. And the du prefix on a word means something like hard or difficult. Basically, it means hard to handle. And the, the opposite word is sukha, which means easy to handle, which gets translated as happiness or ease. Dukkha gets translated as often as suffering but it actually spans something much broader than what we, we think of, of suffering as suffering. So everything from the most 
minor kind of unsatisfactoriness or um, yeah sense of incompleteness to you know the most difficult experiences that we encounter in our human lives so just things like the three of us setting off from the teacher's village and realizing that we didn't have our face masks with us and those kinds of dukkha to the really really major tragedies of our lives So I don't know if you've run into any of it today. (laughs) Yeah. How is it showing up for you? How is this dance of sukha and dukkha showing up for you today? Slightly rhetorical question because you can't all answer me, but just acknowledging, I imagine that there's nobody who's had a dukkha-free day. (laughs) If you've had a dukkha-free day... (laughs) put your hand up and uh, (laughs) really much much joy for you Uh, I'd be very surprised if you have a dukkha free day tomorrow as well sometimes we have these you know experiences where we find ourselves in a continuous continuous state of bliss and happiness but and sometimes on retreat but they tend not to last One of the ways in which definitely people in my group this afternoon were encountering dukkha was the heat of the sun and a sense of really kind of struggling a little bit with the temperature for practice outdoors. And this may be an example where I can point out that really dukkha, this, this observation of the quality of dukkha is not making a, a claim about the sun or heat or temperature, that it's a kind of, you know, ontological statement or um, the ultimate way things are, that everything is unsatisfactory. Sometimes when we people encounter the Buddhist teaching, um, we, we kind of hear this statement that, you know, everything is characterized by dukkha, and we think that that means... Yeah, every everything is everything is somehow wrong and bad and not okay. It's it's not a statement about the the sun. It's a statement about our experience. It's a characteristic of our experience that our experience um, finds things unsatisfactory. As Susie was saying yesterday, language tends to concretize things um, into you know to 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 make things into concrete abstract objects but actually our experience or our life is a life is a process of flow in which we're constantly engaged and it's our experience that has this quality of unsatisfactoriness to it Actually, I was reflecting on on these words like nature and phenomena. All when we say that all phenomena are are characterized by dukkha, phenomena means things as they appear to us. It's a it's a passive participle of the word to to appear in Greek. The things as they appear to us, we experience them as unsatisfactory. Susie used this lovely word, Pali word, 
yatabuta, the knowledge and vision of yatabuta, things as they've as they are or have come to be in this moment. And actually, this English word nature so means things things uh, that are taking birth, that are about to take birth. It comes from this Latin verb to to be born. Things that are taking birth. And you can see how we go from this kind of, you know, language that acknowledges things as process to something that makes this thing out there that's somehow static and separate from us. But it's all a process in which we're, we're implicated. We're experiencing it. And the characteristic of experience is that it's tinged with this unsatisfactoriness because of the way that it's constantly changing, that we can't pin it down, that we can't grasp it. So there are myriad ways, small and large, that we encounter this experience of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness. And the Buddha pointed to, or traditionally named, named the most obvious ways that we experience dukkha is the experience of aging, of, of growing sick, and the experience of death. Just the fact of being born into a human body, we're going to encounter a certain amount of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. We're going to encounter the experience of losing the things or people that we love. We're going to find ourselves being dealt things, given things that we don't want, losing the things that we do want. We're going to find ourselves in situations where our expectations are disappointed and where we're not in control. And deliberately kind of immersing ourselves more into the outdoor world, the less man-made world, we are right now on this retreat encountering more factors that are beyond our control. And there's a real um, chance to see this and see how we respond and react to it. So the the natural world um, is full of unsatisfactory experience for us. Comfort changes to discomfort and vice versa. There's this direct connection with the, the, um, imper- the fact or the characteristic, the experience of impermanence. And our problem is that we just want the nice stuff. We want the sukha without the dukkha. But they, they come together. So the sun rises and it First of all, it's too cold in the morning and we look forward to when the sun starts to warm us up and then a few an hour or so later we're too hot and we're kind of looking forward to the evening when the sun goes down. And it sounds silly, but you know, we how many people have actually felt that today? I feel that. Or, you know, yeah. Or first of all, we're we're too hungry and then we're too full. We're too uh, too restless, too much energy, then too little energy, and so on. So nature is just naturing, and and we are part of that individually and collectively. 
And so there, there's a level of there's a level of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness that is inevitable just in in being simply being human. And we've also been noticing, Susie said this again last night, how in some ways there's a soothing quality to being uh, more immersed in the non-man-made environment because we see the naturalness of this process of coming and going of conditions and the changing of conditions. And so we, we lose some of that sense of, I should be managing this, something's wrong with this. And there's something actually um, soothing about that, about that sense of recognizing the naturalness of the way things are. And this natural world doesn't judge us, you know, doesn't, doesn't judge us for being a human being in a process that's imperfect, changing. We don't have to be a particular way for the world around us. So another part of our human nature, though, is that we, we want to be happy. We're seeking experiences of contentment, of satisfaction, of stability, of ease of peace, of completion, of well-being. So that also is natural, that the human, human heart learn, yearns for all this, and it's not a mistake. But the problem is that we seek them in the wrong way. And this is the, really was the genius of the Buddha to notice this, to notice that there's something problematic about the way that we go about seeking a sense of, satisfaction, completeness, peace, and ease. So what we tend to do is we tend to try and find a foothold on these changing conditions that are unstable. Recently been doing some walking and climbing and scrambling around on on rocks, sometimes climbing up some quite steep bouldered canyons in the rock and you have to be quite careful what you tread on and because the surface of a rock can shear off or a rock that looks stable might not be quite so stable and uh, it's kind of the same with the the conditioned phenomena of our life we kind of tend to put more weight on them than they can hold we tend to look for support or security in places which are unreliable. The most, the most perfect experience comes to an end. Sometimes we're already mourning the, the end of the perfect experience before it's finished. You have that. We're really, really enjoying something. And then we start thinking, oh, but it's going to be over so soon. Or we start planning about how we can recreate it in the future. And in that, in that doing of it, we're no longer there. We're no longer there to enjoy it. We're kind of worrying about planning about the future. Or how can I make sure that my next sitting is as good as this one? Yeah. What am I doing now that I can make sure the next one is good? Or how can I make sure that I come back to exactly this spot 
then we come back to that spot and the sun has moved and it's all or the the weather's changed and we we do this over and over again and we can catch ourselves doing it at the same time and yet the compulsion to do it is still there so this is really why the teachings invite us to notice to be alert to this innate unsatisfactoriness in experience that we don't um, depend on it, depend on specific things more for our security and stability than they than they're meant to than they cannot actually offer. That's why it's important to see this quality of dukkha in things. And the dukkha really is there because we, not so much in the things themselves, but in what we, what we do with them, the fact that we grasp or we cling to them. So something like the poison oak that's around and, you know, beside some of the paths here and things. Actually, if we leave it alone, it's not a problem. It's if, if we kind of go up to it and pick it up or touch it, there's a problem with it. This is a bit the way that phenomena are for us. When we grasp them and cling to them, this is when suffering arises. And so this practice of seeing clearly is learning not to blindly grasp onto things. Dukkha is in a sense um, fighting against the way things are. Sometimes it's described as rope burn, trying to hold on to something that's slipping away from us. So we either try to hold on to what we want that's slipping away from us or we try to get rid of what we don't want. Uh, And our first response to unpleasant experience is usually aversion. The Buddha points to a different way. He said, I teach dukkha and the ending of dukkha. And the first of the noble truths or ennobling truths he taught is that there is dukkha. Dukkha is is a feature of the world of our experience. And he said, dukkha, this dukkha is to be thoroughly understood. And this is why we ask, ask ourselves to hold steady with it in this non-reactive way. So dukkha is normal and it's there to be understood. So just as change is not a mistake, you know, we think that somehow it's a mistake that things have changed. Also, dukkha is not a mistake. And that's quite a profound thing to take on board because I think in, particularly in our society, you know, we, we're kind of conditioned to think that if we're suffering, there's something wrong with us. Or if a, an experience is unsatisfactory, we've somehow failed in our task of managing everything, that all our experience can be great. So there's something actually already liberating in this recognition recognition of the normality of dukkha 
and it's described as a noble or ennobling truth. There's actually something noble, uplifting, and um, enhancing of our humanity in recognizing this quality of unsatisfactoriness in experience. To me, there's a, a sense of reverence with which we can approach suffering or unsatisfactoriness. When we recognize one another's vulnerability, when we recognize the vulnerability of life around us and the creatures around us. Have you noticed? I've, no, I've noticed, noticed you noticing some of the small living beings with which we're sharing this space who are so vulnerable to are kind of not noticing them and maybe trampling on them and so on. And there's a real sense of care and reverence and respect with which, um, with which we look at and notice and um, take care of these little creatures with whom we're sharing the space. There's something poignant, as we were saying last night, about seeing this, this process of life and death and birth and decay um, happening around us that actually awakens a sense of reverence and respect. And this experience of dukkha also connects us with one another. It connects us with life. It wakes us up to our, our common humanity When we encounter dukkha, said that there's you know, two possibilities. Either we kind of collapse under the weight of it, or it wakes us up to go forth in search. And this is really you know, what, what brings us to a place like this or a practice like this. I don't think any of us come to something like this because of an excess of happiness in our life. Yeah. Or even if there's an excess of happiness, there's this little nagging feeling, I want to find the method to hold on to this forever. You know. So this this recognition, there's already this recognition of the inherent unsatisfactoriness of things that brings us into this kind of practice. So it's a it's it's a it's a catalyst. For something ennobling, something beautiful. And it also gives birth to the quality of compassion, that wish to alleviate, to soothe, to alleviate suffering in ourselves and in one another. In some ways it, it connects us, it connects us to each other. Dukkha is kind of like the, the mycelium connects us to one another as human beings. So then our, our big question becomes like, how, how do we alleviate suffering rather than contribute to it? How can we contribute to the diminishing of dukkha rather than to the increasing of dukkha? And this is where the Buddha has the teaching that there's also, not only is there the truth of dukkha to be understood, but there's also 
an origin and a cessation of dukkha and a path to walk through, navigate dukkha. The basic understanding is that what exacerbates dukkha, what keeps dukkha in place, what creates further dukkha is the activity of clinging, of grasping. And grasping is of two kinds. It's either trying to hold on to things or trying to get rid of them. So actually the form of of grasping that's actually pushing away. Pushing away is another form of grasping. Yesterday, Susie shared the quote that to see the truth of impermanence, even for a day, is better than a lifetime spent without seeing the truth of impermanence. But why is that? Why is that? Because when we really see the changing, of na- changing nature of things, we see that there's nothing that we can really hold on to. And it's kind of easy to get that intellectually or, and, and to get it also in meditative insight in maybe a deeper way. But even once we've, we've understood that, there's a lot of work that has to happen to decondition this tendency to cling. And this is what we're doing in our practice So sometimes we talk about sudden enlightenment and gradual cultivation. And I know when I began practice, I was waiting for that aha moment where I would kind of see everything and the work would all be done. And the more we practice, the more we realize that this is a lifetime's work or lifetime's work to decondition this way of responding unskillfully to to dukkha, to clinging and grasping. So what, what do we do when we encounter unsatisfactoriness? We tend to respond in or to react in various ways. One is aversion, to try to get rid of what we don't like. Another way is to seek escape by looking for some pleasant experience. And... Uh, These days, a lot of us may be our first place that we go when we're feeling a slight sense of I don't know what to do or, you know, slightly unpleasant feeling is to reach for our smartphone. And I know some of us are are suffering the absence of our smartphone in moments. And it's really interesting to see, you know, you get to see how, how hooked we are on some of these distractions, ways of distracting ourselves. We go, we, we, we scroll through till we find something that's going to give us a, a happy or uplifted or interested feeling again. So we, we push away what, what's unpleasant. We seek an escape through looking for some fix, the piece of chocolate, the, the thing on our phone, going to find a cool place to lie down. or we we numb out we kind of zone out go to sleep or we just become very restless 
So these, some of you might recognize, I'm kind of sketching through what are sometimes called the five hindrances, which are ways that the, we, uh, reactive patterns that are really common in our behavior towards what we don't like. And the last of them also is doubt. We kind of think that there must be a way to fix it, but we start to doubt um, what we've be, what we've been told to do. We start to doubt the effectiveness of these teachings because they're not providing us with an instant pleasant experience. So we kind of think, oh, this this can't be right. Better go to another retreat center in a different tradition, find some better teachers, and uh, yeah. So when we do all these things also, we're actually creating more unpleasantness. So there's a, there's a way in which the, the, the initial arising of discomfort that just comes from the changing conditions, the aging of our bodies, the loss of what we like, or just the changing conditions around us, we experience this discomfort. And it's as if we've been struck with an arrow and then rather than just pulling the arrow out, what we do is we start shooting more arrows at ourselves in our attempts to fix the situation. And some of the initial discomfort, there's nothing we can do about. But what we can do is we can learn to refrain from shooting further arrows For example, this afternoon when it was really hot, sitting outside, meditating in the heat, even if you were in the shade. If we start to get really restless and and, uh, moving around a lot, trying to make ourselves comfortable, we probably ended up heating ourselves up more. And if we started down a, a route of kind of internal discussion about, what on earth are we doing out here? And there's this wonderful meditation hall with air conditioning and why aren't we practicing? And maybe nature retreats are a big mistake and we should just all move into the hall. You know, I wonder what effect that had on how you were feeling. Whereas if we just sit there and feel the warmth of the body and the sweat and just kind of feel our breath, actually... You know, some of that extra, extra dukkha that we're creating around it starts to subside and actually maybe it's okay. So we're doing this over and over again with different, different um, aspects of our experience. So looking out for the ways that the way we participate in our experience exacerbates rather than alleviates this dukkha. And to point out too that dukkha, um, we experience dukkha at the individual level, but there's also collective ways in which we experience dukkha through social injustice or marginalization through our you know recognition of what humanity is doing to the planet through ignorance or the ways that you know 
segments of humanity go to war with other segments of humanity. So, and again, some of this is, some of, much of this is beyond our control. And there's some of it in which there are things that we can do and in which we are implicated, in which we have responsibility. So dukkha is not just an individual phenomenon or an individual experience, but it's also a societal thing. And then there are ways that the collective responds with delusion also. So, you know, our way to try and find satisfactoriness collectively as a society has been through consumerism. You know, and there's whole sort of systems in place that, um, perpetuate that, perpetuate this delusion that we just had more, got more, consumed more. We could all be, we could all find happiness that way. Yeah, there's plenty of research that shows that that's that's not the case. Let alone the impact that that has on on the planet. Or we, you know, things arise that are unwanted that we don't like, and we declare war on them. So we have a war on terror and a war on COVID. A war on drugs. I think somewhere, I can't remember, it's in the UK, the term the war on want, you know, as a way to try to eradicate. And, you know, this comes from a... Um, a wholesome intention to try to solve the COVID pandemic or to alleviate poverty. But there's this way that we go to war with things that is not very wise and not very skillful. So we're doing this on the individual personal level and on the connect collective level. And the work that we do to understand how to respond more skillfully as individuals and then we have the possibility of translating that maybe into a wiser collective response. So when we notice, when we, we kind of are alert to the dukkha in our experience rather than trying to push it away. We can respond with compassion and with kindness and with a, a sense of restraint from um, or, or learning to restrain the ways that we react to get rid of things, the ways that we create more dukkha out of, out of the dukkha. I like this image of trying to keep things with the way that we try to keep things within the bandwidth of our tolerance rather than recognizing we can grow the bandwidth of our tolerance. Because when we try to squeeze things in, we just create more stress and more suffering. There's a, a, an equation from the teacher Shinzen Young who says that suffering is pain times resistance. And check that out for yourself. And if you, if you have some math knowledge, you'll see that if we put a zero into the resistance, it does something to the other side of the equation. 
suffering equals pain times resistance. So other ways that we create suffering for ourselves is, you know, thinking how things should and shouldn't be, that things should be different from the ways that they are. Maybe just things to be alert to that we do in our mind. Like the idea that we should be not in some kind of transitional space in our life, that we should have everything packaged up and sorted so when somebody says who are you and what do you do you can say I'm you know I do this 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 and this and most of us are in a more transitional space than that most of the time yeah or the complaining mind so I've been spending some time prior to this retreat with Susie and uh, we were talking about types of dukkha and she pointed to it a new type of dukkha called jaya dukkha, which is the dukkha where of, uh, of always anticipating what might go wrong, <laughs> which never actually happens. But uh, she said, there, there, there's, real, there's real problems and then there's jaya dukkha, which is just this wondering what's going to go wrong or trying to anticipate. I'm going to be too hot. I'm going to be too cold. I'm not going to have this right, the right st- things with me. And uh, all these things that may or may not arise. Or blaming. You know, this is another way that we try to uh, deflect, deviate from being with dukkha. Or proliferating. So I was noticing today there were some mosquitoes where some of us were sitting and you have the unpleasantness of the, the sound of that mosquito zoning in on you and the, the agitation on the skin. And then, you know, maybe you brush it away or maybe you don't. Maybe you do a really kind of zen, high-quality practice thing and you just sit there and equanimity with the mosquito. But then I could see my mind going, why didn't... Why didn't they tell us that there were going to be mosquitoes here? And I could have put some anti-bug stuff on. We should have told everybody that there'd be mosquitoes. And you kind of, we don't know. The conditions are changing from day to day. But we can make this whole story around it. And actually, there's more suffering in the story that we create than in the actual experience. So this mental proliferation around what we don't like. Or taking things personally. You know, this particular sitting was not very pleasant, not very comfortable. So very quickly we become a bad meditator. And then we have this whole story about, I can't do this. I'm a bad meditator. So these, are, these forms of dukkha are optional when we have our wisdom hat on. So practicing together, we're practicing simply letting, letting the unpleasant be as it is when there's nothing that we can do about it. And to be compassionate to the suffering that's there without actually repressing it or denying it. And this is particularly true and particularly important for the major losses and the major challenges of our life. And it's really so common to feel 
that there's not a place for those to be acknowledged. That somehow, you know, society demands that we have our, our happy face on all the time, or that um, we can't burden people with our, our difficulties and our suffering. And so, so valuable to be in places or contexts where there's an openness to the dukkha of life, to the dukkha of existence, and to be able to be real about what's here. So noticing this this feature of experience is not a mistake and beginning to see unsatisfactoriness as an opportunity to wake up and we start, we can practice with the small things. And then we learn to move from reactivity and often unconscious habitual reactivity to the capacity to respond with kindness and with wisdom and develop a sense of of fearlessness in the face of dukkha or equanimity or unshakability. So... In all, all moments of dukkha, to see dukkha as a doorway into the possibility of freedom, to the possibility of letting go, letting be, of waking up, of growing the compassionate heart. And then we can. Treat every moment as an invitation to wake up to this world with a sense of wonder, to allow life to unfold. A sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of ease. So maybe I'll close with a poem that is probably familiar to some of you, but a much-loved poem, which is Naomi Shihab Nye's poem on kindness. And this, she wrote this, I believe, after an experience. I think she was traveling on a honeymoon in South America and experienced a, a kind of a violent holdup and of a um, bus that she was traveling on. She said, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, 
all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it's you I've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. So thank you for your kind attention. And we've got some time for walking meditation now. And then the final sitting of the evening today, um, rather than dispersing around the meditation hall, we're inviting you to come to the front patio where Susie will actually lead uh, some practice. So I'll be on the the front area outside the meditation hall at 8.45, yeah.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.